0: I could not be more excited today about the message and the campaign we're in called That We May. I think you already know it's more than about money. It's more than about Generosity Sunday. It's more than about taking up, uh, you know, or, or you, us giving an offering on, on June 9th. It's more than that. It's about a lifestyle of generosity, and it all comes out of these three little words. And today's message is really about That We May, but it has another title as well. And the title for today is called The Weight of Worship. The weight of worship. And I want to unpack that for us today, but the beginning point for today is important. In fact, it's more than important. I don't know what word's more than important. It's imperative that we all start at the same place today. And where we start today is understanding uh, that God doesn't need anything from us. Can we just say that together? Can we say that out loud? God doesn't need anything from us. Let's just say it together. Come on, let's say it like we really mean it, because that's pretty freeing, right? God doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't. He's God. He's not looking around today going, let's see, okay, maybe she's got something I need. No, he doesn't need anything. In fact, on the contrary, God's equation works opposite of that. He didn't invite you to church today to get something from you. He invited you to church today to give something to you because that's how the equation works in the kingdom of God. He didn't invite you to church today to get you to serve him. He invited you to church today so that he could serve you because he can do for us what no one else can do for us. And he knows it. And so he said, hey, come and gather with the people of God. Come into the house of God. Come into this atmosphere of faith. Come into this house of worship and let me do for you what no one else can do for you. Isn't that awesome and freeing and powerful? I mean, so many times in our lives, we come into the doors of the church thinking, what's God going to ask me to do? What are the people going to ask me to do? They're going to probably ask me to give, they've already done that. Yep, dude came up, asked us to give today. No, someone came up today and said, if you want to have a big harvest, give generously in your life and sow seeds generously in your life. If you want a little bitty harvest, you can get a little bitty harvest today. We got little bitty harvest for sale today, just plant a few seeds. But if you want a giant harvest today, put a bunch of seeds in the ground. Oh, and by the way, God gives us all the seeds we got. Awesome. Amen. The buckets are coming now. That's a game changer, is it not? And it's a game changer for us to understand that Jesus does the serving. If you have uh, your scripture this morning, I love this passage in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. 2020 is a good way to remember this one. It is a way to see very clearly into the kingdom of God. And there's a story going on here, it's the end of Jesus' time on earth and his disciples are gathered around him and two of them's mother is present. Have you ever experienced something in life where there was something a dynamic going on with your sports team or your classroom or whatever, but your mom was there, and she was the only mom that was there, and she decided she was gonna speak up for her son or daughter? Does anybody remember those moments? And you kind of loved it, and you kind of hated it all at the same time. You know, in the moment, you were like, Mom, yeah, but afterwards, you're like, "Yeah, hey, my mom, she spoke to you. Yeah, she's got my back. That's pretty amazing. Well, there was a mom here, and what went down, down is so phenomenal to me today. It is the starting point for that we may. If we miss this, we miss everything today, but if we get this, you don't even need a sermon after this because it's all gonna fall into place if we understand the beauty of what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 20. Then the mother, there she comes, of Zebedee's sons. That's the sons of thunder, it's a good day for them, um, who are James and John. So then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons. So she's got them, bringing them, come on boys, we're going, I'm talking to them. Can you see this going down? There's disciples, there's one mother there, she's got two boys that are in the group, and she's got both of them, one by one hand, one by, come on, we're going to talk to him. And then here she comes to Jesus, with both her sons and they're the sons of thunder. They don't really need their mom you know, doing the talking but she believes in them and so here's what she does. She comes to Jesus and asks a favor of him. Moms, have you ever asked a favor for your kids? Any mom in here ever gone to somebody, called somebody, sent an email, sent a note just to ask for a little favor for your kids? We get that, right? And here's what she asks. He said, what do you want? She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left hand in your kingdom. Now that is a mom right there. I can see Martha Jean Giglio doing that, totally. It sounds like you're about to set up shop and rule and reign, and here's what I'd like to ask. Son number one, right hand. Son number two, left hand. The rest of these boys, you can put them wherever you want them as long as my two sons are one at the right and one at the left. And then obviously, she doesn't know quite what's going on at this point, so Jesus is trying to clarify, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? Now, if you're the sons of thunder, what is the answer to any question you get asked by Jesus? Absolutely. We don't know what you're asking, but we're the sons of thunder, and thunder rocks and rolls, and so they said, I love their answer at the end of verse 22, we can. We can. He's like, okay, you want, you want to be at the right and you want to be at the left? Do you, do you know what that's about? Absolutely, count us in. We're up for it. We are on board. You can count on us, whatever it is, we can. Well, we know as long as we live that we can is not a power, part of the vocabulary of the kingdom of God, right? We can't. And they hadn't gotten that all the way down yet because they didn't understand the big picture going around, around them, so Jesus tries to help them see it. And he says, "You will indeed drink from my cup, so you're going to understand this. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father." And so then, verse 24, when the ten heard about this, um, they were uh, upset. These they were frustrated, and when when they heard what went down, this is this is what they were saying: what, "What's going on with these two brothers?" And and some of them were probably saying, I wish my mom was here today. Why why, why didn't my mom turn up today and get in there and get ahead of their mom? Because it sounds like something's going down right now, and it sounds like some stuff's being divided and decided, and we're not really sure what's going on. There's a gap between us and what's happening, and Jesus is trying to say to everybody, look, there's no gap going on here. Let me explain, and here comes his explanation. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. In other words, he said, look around and understand how authority works in the world, and the way it works in the world is the people who have the authority They hold that over and lord that over the people who don't have the authority, and they pick some and don't pick others, and put their favorites over here, and do this and do that. That's how it works in the world system. That's probably why you came and asked me to put your sons at the right and at the left, because you thought it kind of worked like everything else worked, that I can do you a favor and get you into the highest position. But I love this little phrase that Jesus says in verse 26, not so with you. Now, that's a byphrase or a byword of the kingdom of God right there. Mom, dad, all the other kids are blah, 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 blah. And you're like, I know, but not so with you. Not no, you can't, just not so with you. All the other people, all the other businessmen are, are, are whatever, 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 and they're all running their businesses like this. And then it's like, I know, but not so with you. Because we're not like everybody else. We're not in the same mindset as everyone else. And Jesus is looking at these guys going, oh, you think it works like this, but see, that's not us. That's them. Not so with you. He said, let me tell you how it works with us. And this is the beautiful part. He said, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first... Must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what Jesus is saying, if you want to sit at the right and you want to sit at the left, I can help you with that. I can't give you an assignment right now of seating because only my father is doing that, and he is evaluating how that all works, and that's not for me to say right now, but I can tell you how to get to the top. If you want to get to the top, to get to the top in the kingdom of God, the way we work in the world that we live in, just be a servant because the first is going to be the last, and the greatest is going to be a servant of all. Being a servant, hello, is the top job in the kingdom of God. That my friends, is turning everything upside down. And what happened in this passage and in this story was a train wreck of trajectories. The two sons of Zebedee wanted to know how to get to the top, the deal was, as they were trying to work their way to the top, Jesus, the Son of God, was working his way to the bottom, and they collided and passed in midair. They were trying to figure out how to get to top spots in the kingdom, and the king of the kingdom was trying to figure out how to get to the lowest spot in the kingdom, which was to serve you and to serve me. And they're saying, "I want to know how to get up." And Jesus is saying, "Hey, interesting, and we'll talk about that later, but I can't really worry about you getting up." right now because I'm on my way down right now because here's the ticket guys I didn't come to be served I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many so I'd like just to say for all of us today because it's pretty awesome you've been served no, not in that way. I know some of you are like, that. I wasn't looking for that today. In fact, I kind of looked both ways when I parked today, just checking out to see if anybody looked like they were coming toward me with anything. Not that kind of being served. You have been served. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, his mode of operation was to leave his throne in glory and to come to earth to serve you. He's always served you. He has served you in his life, death, and resurrection, and he's actually serving you right now. When you woke up today, Jesus was serving you already this morning by interceding for you, for the Father, standing in the gap for you, for the Father, praying for you today, offering his life to you today, giving his word to you today, promising you a future today. He served you when he created you. He served you when he took time out of eternity. To knit you together in your mother's womb He served you when he uniquely thought about How he was going to wire you together He served you on the moment you were born And he gave you your first breath And he's been serving you ever since And he's serving you right now And he didn't invite us today I love this He didn't invite us to the house of worship today To say "All right, everybody I'm glad you're here I want everybody now to start serving me he invited us to the house of worship today to say, I want you to know that the Son of Man came to serve you and to give his life as a ransom for you. So as we come to Generosity Sunday, as we head into that we may, it's not about money. It's not about giving. It's not about, um, it's not about an offering or our finances. I mean, think about how crazy that sounds. I mean, Jesus isn't trying to get into your pocketbook He's, he's not like a pickpocket on a crowded train and he's you know kind of spying somebody else saying, hey, that guy over there looks like he's got a $1,500 in his bank account. If I could just kind of get into his bank account, that would be pretty awesome. Think about how absurd that is. He's the creator of the universe. He owns all the minerals in the heart of the earth and on every planet in the galaxies beyond. He doesn't need our anything. He doesn't need a thing from you and me. He just loves us and he wants to be in a relationship with us and to do that he has to serve us and right now in the house in this moment you have been and are being served by the king of the universe Jesus is serving you he's serving you that's our starting point that's the starting point and everything else dominoes out of the power of that thought. That's why for me, and I'm gonna try to put some scripture under today, the weight of worship, what is the weight of worship? And we're talking about worship today. We're not just talking about singing a few songs when we come to church together. We're talking about a lifestyle of worship. All of me and my whole life and all of you and your whole life offered to God as a sacrifice of praise. And the weight of that, the heart of that And the weight of our worship is the gospel. That's the weight of worship. That's my whole talk. So, you know, you're not supposed to give your whole talk away. They taught us that in seminary. And I'm a little nervous about it this morning because you're supposed to build up to that and create some tension and let some people think it's that and some people think it's that. And then you're supposed to resolve it all at the end and go, oh, wow, it's that. Isn't that amazing? Great job. Amazing message. I'm just putting it out there right now. Here's my whole talk. The weight of worship is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the weight of worship. Now, before that means anything to us, I guess we should back up and talk about the gospel. And I've only done that about 500 times here. So can I do it one more time? Would that be okay if I just talked about the gospel one more time? I know we've talked about the gospel a lot. And if you know it a lot, will you just come along with me and encourage me that we've talked about it so much that you're even getting on board uh, with the language we're using? Here's the gospel. Let's talk about what the gospel isn't first. Okay, are you ready? The gospel isn't that sin makes you Oh, that's good. Thank you so much. It isn't that sin makes you bad. It's worse than that. It's that sin makes you dead. dead. That's the problem. See, that's the big problem right there because being dead is a huge problem. The wages of sin, the scripture says, is death, not that you're bad. So we didn't come to church today because we didn't do so good this weekend. Nobody showed up today because we got to make something up to God. Because the gospel story is not a story rooted in the fact that you or I were good or bad. It's rooted in the truth that sin makes us spiritually dead. And that's worse than being bad. But the rescue of our story is that Jesus came not just for a self improvement plan to make us better people, but Jesus came to give his life, pay the price. Be crucified and dead in our place, be raised up from the dead for us so that He could give us the thing we needed most. What's the main thing you need when you're dead? Life. The main thing you need when you're dead is not an improvement plan, a set of DVDs to watch, a podcast, a sermon series. That's not what you need when you're dead. You can't listen to a sermon series when you're dead. When you're dead, the main thing you need is life. And so Christ came to give us the gift of everlasting, inside, spiritual, never-dying life. And so that's the gospel. We were dead, Christ made us alive. And that is the weight of our worship. When the gospel is in play, worship always is a result. So let's back up one more step, because this is important that we all kind of line everything up today. To back up one more step, how do you get from dead to life? Because that's a big journey. That's a big gap to cover from being completely spiritually dead dormant and separated from God to being in the presence of a holy righteous God. How do you get there? And the way we don't get there is by propulsion. I love it that we got the sons of thunder and we got thunder. This is all coming together today uh, just like I had planned it and prayed for. So that's pretty awesome. I love it when that happens. How do you get there? Well, it's not by propulsion. Now, propulsion is kind of a weird, interesting word. I like it. Propulsion means um, rockets. Just think like that. There's a place in California called the JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratories. Anybody ever heard of that before? These amazing men and women are responsible for helping us get into space, and they've designed ways to propel us into orbit, to the space station, or to the moon, or to on into infinity and beyond. That's what sort of their, their mantra is. We want to get people out of the gravitational pull of Earth and into outer space, and they do a great job of it. Um, we got to experience this, a few of us, a couple years ago. I think I've told you about it, but we went to the Johnson Space Center. We got in the simulator for the space shuttle. And we knew it was a simulator. We knew we really weren't going into space um, because we weren't astronauts. But uh, we were on a tour. Uh, Mike Good, an amazing astronaut who had been in space many times, he was taking us on this tour, got us in the simulator. He's in that seat. I'm in the, like the drive-in seat, like I'm gonna land this baby. It was pretty amazing. I apparently blew out all the tires on the space shuttle on the landing, but I did get us home safely and created millions of dollars worth of repair work to all of the structural system of the, of the axles and all that kind Kind of stuff, but anyway, nonetheless, we're going up, and we strap in, and mentally, it's pretty weird. I don't know how this works, it's, but mentally, I know we're not going anywhere for real, but then they started doing the check system countdowns. We have all our stuff on. We're strapped into this thing. It's very cramped in there, by the way, which was weird. It made me feel better about flying coach sometimes on Delta because I always think that's crowded, but the astronauts, way more crowded. They don't have nearly as much leg room as you have in coach on Delta, and there's about five of us, and we're all in this thing. We're strapped in, and it gets down to the ignition sequence, and finally, the, the, the rockets go off, and in my mind, I know we're not going anywhere. I know we're in a simulator. I know we're at the Johnson Space Center south of Houston, but when the thing went off in the volcano. Started going off underneath us. I thought we might be going somewhere, and all of a sudden, I'm not kidding. I don't know how it worked, but for a few seconds, I kind of thought we might be leaving the building. I don't know if we're going all the way to space, but we're going somewhere because my insides are rattling right now, and something's happening around me that I've never felt before. You could feel it, and I'm looking at him like, "Oh yeah, where we, are we going? Are we, we, are we? Is this a trick? Is this a joke? You know?" And I'm like, "How did this work?" And so we're going, 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 and we're running through all these sequences now, and they're calling out things that are happening that we don't fully understand everything. And finally, eight and a half minutes later, just after teeth rattling, bone jarring, we're going up into space together. (sighs) Miko, main engine cutoff. Eight and a half minutes later, we're in orbit. And it's just, and you're like, I'm kind of looking out this little side window to make sure the guy running everything down there is still down there, you know? (laughs) But we'd gone, I mean, I don't know how they gauge it, but it could be 80 miles, 100 miles, 120 miles. There's all these people define space in different ways. But think about it. You can't get on 400 from here in eight and a half minutes. (laughs) And we were in space. That's the power of propulsion. Propulsion. And it's a big deal, especially when you've sat on it <laughs> and you felt it. But as amazing as we are, I say we collectively, I didn't really design any rockets in my life, but you know what I'm talking about, as amazing as mankind is, propulsion is not sufficient enough to get you from death To life why is the main reason that we can't get enough propulsion to get from death to life it's a real simple equation anybody want to help me with it because when you're dead you can't build a rocket (laughs) and so if we're dead in our sins then propulsions off the table even if you are really smart or really talented, or really strong, or really powerful, or really rich, or really a good person, all kind of propulsion is off the table because you're dead, and dead people can't build a sufficient external fuel tank to get them out of the forces and the grip of death and hell and the grave and into the presence of God. So propulsion's not going to work. What do you need? The answer is you need a counterweight to get you into the presence of God. And that's exactly what happens with the Gospel. I love Ephesians 2, I won't spend any time on it because we got some ground to cover, but can we just look at it together? Verse one, Ephesians chapter two, it says, "'As for you, you were dead,' there's our word, "'in your transgressions and sins, "'in which you used to live, "'when you followed the ways of this world, "'and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, "'the spirit who is now at work "'in those who are disobedient.'" All of us, that's a very large phrase, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts, and like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Now that's the bad news of the gospel. So if, if you just stop there and that's all the messages you hear, then you're not going to want to come around that much because it's like that's just more bad news. But there has to be bad news for there to be really good news. And to the degree the news is bad, always let you know to the degree the news is good. And so if uh, you have super bad news and you get a super great solution, then all of a sudden that becomes even better news because of the predicament that you were in in the first place, and we were in a pretty major predicament, but the sea change happens in verse three, um, in verse four, excuse me, and now here comes the other side of the gospel, but, always begins with a but, but because of his great love for us, that's why it started. God, who is rich in mercy, say it with me, made us, what, alive with Christ, even when we were what dead in our transgressions it is by grace you have been saved and then here comes even more and god raised us up with christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in christ Jesus. Now, that's the counterweight. I've been studying, I've been really uh, fixated on elevators for the last couple of months, and um, I know somebody needs to be, and I just decided I would take that role. I've been into elevators. I've been getting very familiar with the Otis family, and um, going all the way back to the beginnings of Mr. Otis, and where he came from, and how he created the The mechanisms for making elevators work, and it really is a guy, you know, and he really was back in time. And elevators work by counterweight. I think most of you know that. If you want to go up, something has to work for that to happen. Um, A few weeks ago, we were in Seattle, had a day off, and I'm in love with Mount Rainier. Most of you know that, and uh, I mean, I'm in love with the God who created Mount Rainier, and it's one of the most amazing things He's done. It had been cloudy when we got there, cloudy on Sunday, but on Monday woke up, opened the deal, blue sky, clear, and I'm like, hello, it's. One of the 14 days in Seattle in the year that there's a blue sky, I'm fired up. There's really a few more than that. And so I went down in the hotel and I said to the concierge, I'd like to go to the Space Needle because I want to see Mount Rainier today. I love Mount Rainier. It's majestic and beautiful. And he goes, hey, if you want to see Mount Rainier, you don't want to go to the Space Needle. You want to go to the Columbia Center. And I'm like, what's the Columbia Center? He said, this is the Columbia Center. He didn't I pull a picture out of his wallet, but that's it right there. I said, where is it? He goes about nine blocks from here. Just go down here and turn down here and go over there. And I'm like, what will I do at the Columbia Center? He said, you'll go up to the observation deck, and you're not going to believe the view. And I was like, okay, so I'm going to go. So I go to the Columbia Center. I go in the lobby, and I ask around, how do you go to the observation deck? They said, go over here and go up to 40. And when you get to 40, change elevators and go up to 73. So I'm like, okay, that's what I'm gonna do, right? And when I get to the top, this is what I see. This is looking off um, towards downtown Seattle. And do you see anything in the middle of that picture right there? Let me blow it up just a little bit so you can see what we're talking about. That's the Space Needle. That little pyramid to the left is where we had the burning lights tour, uh, Key Arena. But if you can shrink it back down a little bit. um, So that's what we're looking down at. So that's when I knew the concierge was right. I don't want to be in a space needle. That looks like Legos down there. You know, we're like up here like, oh, look, you can barely see it down there. Oh, there's a space needle. And I'm thinking about all the poor people down on the space needle down there going, oh, this is amazing. No, that's not amazing. This is amazing up here. Looking out the window the other direction, you see down to the football stadium, looks like they're putting a new sod in, and then the baseball stadium right behind, that's where the beloved Seahawks play, Todd. Uh, They did not make it to the NFC Championship game this year. Somebody text Judah Smith and let him know that, um, just in case he's still wondering about it. And then if you look off to the east, this is what you see. And that's what we went up there for, obviously. I mean, are you seeing what I'm seeing? You're saying, well, I see some clouds in the distance, and I see some stuff. Well, let me just blow it up just a tiny bit for you. That's what we're looking at. That's the top of Mount Rainier sticking up above the clouds, one of the most stunning things God has put down on North America. And I mean, there are a lot of people coming up there. I mean, there were some, some people speaking Russian or some version of that up there. There were some Japanese people up there. There was some people that looked like they'd come from Cleveland up there. There were all kinds of people up there because I sat in the corner right there where I could see out that window for about, oh, an hour and a half. And all these people were coming in there like, oh, look, I think that's where we parked the car. Oh, I think out down here. And I'm like, hey, Mount Rainier, people, right here. Mount Rainier. And they're just like, oh, yeah, that's great. Nobody's really seen it, but I'm seeing it. And I'm like, this is amazing amazing vista you can look out the other side see the cascade range I mean this is like I'm just walking around this thing like oh this is so amazing then back to Rainier Corner you know and I'm spending a couple hours up there hanging out but how did I get there I got there by walking in and looking at this panel right here and choosing to push that button right there that says 40 on it 40 takes you to 40 little heads up if you're ever in Seattle there's a Starbucks on 40 And if you can't afford the $9 to get on the observation deck, the Starbucks is free. And it's probably one of the most amazing Starbucks views you're ever going to have in life. That's at 40. But at 40, you get off and you press that other button over there, 73, and it takes you up to the observation deck. And here's the thing when you get off the observation deck, you don't walk out at 73 and go, All right, everybody, how about that? I just came from the lobby all the way up to 73. No, people are looking at you like, What's wrong with you? You got in the elevator. See, we get in the elevator, we push the button, the button takes us up, we get off, ding, doors open, we get on the other thing, we push the button, we get off, ding, ding, and then we see the vista and the view, but do you know how that happened? It happened because of a counterweight. That's how elevators work. So attached to the elevator car are cables. The cables go up and they go through a system. The cables are attached to the counterweight. The counterweight most likely looks like a huge slab of steel, probably this thick, the size of an elevator car, maybe two or three or four of those slabs on top of each other. And so when you say, I want to see the view, the computer tells the thing to lower the counterweight. And as the counterweight comes down, the car goes up. So you don't do anything and I don't do anything except step in the door. The weight does everything, and when the weight comes down, we go up. This is when I started getting excited. You're like, hey, that seems like elementary physics to me. I know, but when you transfer that to the gospel, that's pretty powerful and amazing truth, because it works like this. Christ came down. From heaven to earth, and he is the counterweight. And when Christ came down in his glory and in his righteousness, the weight of Christ, the Son of God, coming down from heaven to earth was a sufficient weight to lift me up and detangle me from all the power of sin, hell, and death, and to lift me up all the way into the presence of the living God. So it wasn't propulsion that got me up into the presence of God. It was the counterweight of Jesus that brings me into the presence of God. This started firing me up because I remembered in the Old Testament there's a word called KBD. Sometimes they just call Old Testament words by the letters that make them up and this word's made up of three Hebrew letters, KBD. It could be pronounced kabod or kabod and what kabod means is in your scripture, if you read it, is the word glory. For example, Moses said in Exodus 33 to God, if you have found favor with me, show me your glory. And God said, whoa, that's a, quite a big request. And he said, I can't show you my full glory because no one can see me and live, but I'll I, I, I like where you're going with this. And so I'm gonna bring you up on the mountain. Do you remember the story? I'm gonna put you in the crack of a rock. Remember the cleft of a rock. And I'm gonna put my hand over you and I'm gonna let the back side of my glory. Now see, I don't even understand that. There's a front side and a back side, but I'm just gonna let the back side of my glory pass by you and I'm gonna have you in a rock, in a crack, and my hand over you. And I'm gonna let the back of my glory pass by you and we'll do it that way. Because if if anything else goes down, you're not coming off the mountain. And so this is what transpires. And he says, I will let my KBD pass by you. I'll let my Kabod pass by you, the back of it. And it was so intensely bright and beautiful that the back of the glory of God, even though hidden by the hand of God in a crack in a rock, was powerful enough to light up the face of Moses so that days and weeks later, when he appeared to the people, he was still glowing from the KBD of God, the Kabod of God, the glory of God, just the back of that glory had lit his life up because that's how radiant God is. And that word KBD that we translate into our scripture, my glory will pass before you, it comes from a root word which means weight. So, the word for glory comes from the word weight. The intrinsic worth and weight of God Almighty, the glory of God, has come down in Christ to earth. And when the weight of God's glory came down, it was a sufficient weight to lift us out of the depths and into the very presence of God. If you need a yes, I mean, come on. I mean, it's just absolutely amazing. And beautiful if you need a connector for that in scripture it's found in 2nd Corinthians 4 verse 5 for we do not preach ourselves but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus sake for God who said let light shine out of darkness that was the original creation made his light, that's the light of God, shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory. There's the word doxa in the New Testament, tying back to KBD, kabod in the Hebrew, tying back to the word wait. So it's God who shined his light in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the weightiness of God. And how do you do it? In the face of Christ. So, all the weight of the glory of God resided on the face of Jesus. And God sent the weighty one down, sufficient weight to take you all the way to the heights to see the vista of forever and to understand the kingdom of God. His weight weighs more than your sinfulness. His righteousness weighed more than our foolishness. The holiness of God in Christ weighed more than all the mess up of our lives. And not just your life, he's not just sufficient to take you up, he can take you and a friend up at the same time. He can take you and your family up at the same time. He can take you and your neighbors up at the same time. He can take the nations up because he is a more than sufficient weight to lift up everyone who puts their trust in Jesus. So when we arrive at the top and the bell rings and the doors open, and we see the view of the sons and daughters of God in the kingdom of God, we don't go, well, look at me, I'm at 73. I arrived at the observation deck. We go, oh, my wonderful word. I was down in the depths, in the bottom, in the hole, in the pit, and God came down in glory, and his weight was enough to pull me up to the very heights in God. And when that happens, When that happens, worship always erupts. There's an inseparable link in scripture between the weight coming down and the worship going up. Those two things always happen in tandem. Let's do a really, really quick uh, little survey of scripture. We'll only touch down in a couple of places, but Exodus chapter three, the promise of the deliverance of the Israelites from Pharaoh into a promised land, and this is the way it went down as God's talking to Moses, verse 12. And God said, I will be with you, And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. And then here comes the equation. When you have brought the people out of Egypt. Now we know from the context that Moses isn't bringing anybody out from anywhere. He's leading them out. God's doing all the bringing them out. And so what he's saying is when I deliver you and you lead my people out of bondage, here's what's going to happen. So when you lead my people out of Egypt, what's the very next thing that's going to happen? you will worship God on this mountain. There it is, inseparable link. As soon as you get out, you're gonna come and worship me on this mountain. Because when the weight comes down and the deliverance happens and I lift people up, worship is always the response of the heart and the life. Remember, not just the songs, but a whole life response to God. Psalm 40, same idea. We've talked about this a lot, but it's an intrinsic part of our story. In our house at Passion City Church, it says in Psalm 40, um, these famous words that you two wrote, um, "I waited patiently for the Lord." Uh, he, he turned to me that was a joke, and no one even got it. That was pretty amazing. Lets me know who's coming at 11:15. Um, <laughs> I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry, and he, say it with me, He lifted me out of the slimy pit. So he didn't, I didn't get propelled out. He lifted me out, and how did he lift me out? He lifted me out by stepping down into the slimy pit, and when he stepped in, he could lift me out. So he lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and so what's the very first thing that happens? He set my feet on a rock, gave me a firm place to stand, and he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God so that many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Romans 12, one of the most famous passages on worship in scripture, same idea. Uh, This is what it says, Romans 12, uh, verse one. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy... That's the gospel. That's Jesus coming down by grace, for free, all the work of God. So in view of God's mercy, what God has done, I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So he's saying, see the connection again. When the mercy came down... The worship goes up. When you see what God has done for us in lifting us up and out, what is the reasonable thing to do? That's how this translation reads. It says, in view of God's mercy, if I could just paraphrase what the Greek says, it says, in view of God's mercy, this is the most reasonable thing you can do. In view of God's mercy, this is the most natural response that you would have, that you would offer your whole body as a living and holy sacrifice to God and just say, here I am in light of what you've done here is me. And then one other text and it's our core and anchor text over these days, 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. We see this connection again. And this is speaking of people who've put their trust in Jesus. So if you've put your faith in Christ, this is you this morning. The word of God is about to describe you. Who you are in Christ because of the gospel. This is who you are. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people belonging to God. That's who you are this morning if you put your trust in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? First, you're a chosen race or a chosen people. That means that God picked you, that God chose you, that God moved toward you. And how did you get him to do that? Did you Was your dance amazing? Uh, did you wave really good? Were you smiling like, pick me, pick me? No, because you were what? You were dead and dead people have a hard time saying pick me and so there wasn't anything going on like hey God are you looking for people all right watch this you know hey you know or hey watch me do a worship song or watch how I can live, or watch how much I'm going to give or watch me do whatever I'm going to do no we were dead unable to perform or even say pick me and God said I pick you Isn't that powerful? Because if you get picked when you're dead and you're not doing anything to deserve it, you know that you can count on the love of God that chose you all the days of your life, no matter whether you succeed or fail, because you weren't chosen on the goodness of your life or the badness of your life. You were chosen on the love of God for you, the God who made you and wants you. And he said, I pick you. I pick you. You're chosen people. He said, you're a royal priesthood. He said, what does that mean? It sounds kind of Old Testament-y. It is a little bit Old Testament-y, but what it means is that you and I have direct access to God. You don't need an intermediary. <laughs> you don't need to go through a certain set of channels to get to God. Now, I know that's elementary, but come on, that's crazy. Because when we get in a jam, we start looking at our context to see who do we know And if we don't know the right person, we start looking to our contacts to say, who knows who we need to know? And if we don't know the person that knows who we need to know, we look in our contacts to find the person who knows the person who knows the person we need to know. And we make about eight phone calls and read three blogs and listen to two podcasts and go download four articles on the Internet. And we never stop at the first place and say, Hello, in my contacts is God Almighty in the person of Christ through the presence of the Holy Spirit. I know I'm going to start by calling on God Almighty. to say, you love me and chose me when I couldn't do a thing for myself. Help me, help me. And he may say, I wanna help you and I'm gonna use Jojo to help you, call Jojo, but at least we started with God. And if you're in Christ, you have that direct access right now, right now. You have direct access to Jesus Christ, almighty God. We rarely lean on that. And we mostly lean on the other contacts that we've developed in our life. And as a last resort, if we can't work it out, we'll go to God. But he's saying this is the power of the gospel is that we know our first and consistent call Our first and consistent reach is for Jesus. And you don't need me to get to him. In Christ, you have direct access. He says you're a holy nation, which just simply means I've taken your wrong and put it in the account of Jesus. And I'm taking his right and putting it in your account. You still are fleshing that out. Everyone in this room is still fleshing that out. But in the account of heaven, the righteousness of God is in your account and you are made holy in Christ. And the fourth thing he said, and you're, you're my possession, you're people for God. Meaning that God isn't embarrassed by us. <laughs> isn't that crazy to think about that? He looks at us and goes, these are my people. You see her right there? She's, she's mine. That right there, she's mine. And people are like, her? Uh-huh. She's mine. She's mine. You see that guy right there? He is mine. I don't know if you are or not because I'm just you know, just picking people. So, But hopefully you are. You know, um, but, you know, he, he's saying he's mine, he's mine, she's mine, he's mine, he's mine. These are my people. Isn't that beautiful to you? Because that kind of takes it down from some sort of formulaic, you know, spiritual organization. That you're a number, probably on the, your name's in the Lamb's Book of Life, probably on page 9, 95,228, you know, in want a footnote. No, God's like, no, you're mine. I love you. And I'm gathering you together to be my people. That's what the gospel did for us. And it's true of us right now. The weight came down, and we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession. And you say, well okay, if your equation's right, there should be some worship close by. And I'm like, yeah, there's some worship close by. It's it's all hinged around this little phrase. So your people belonging to God, middle of verse nine, there they are, ta-da, I love it. Wrecking my heart, these three little words, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness, And into his wonderful light. So the gospel came down and the worship went up. And when the worship went up, it was all hinged around a little phrase of three words that we may. I won't bore you with the details, but it's a little Greek word that only appears one time in the New Testament. The only time it appears this one Greek word is right in that phrase in the whole New Testament. And what it's saying is, is that because of the gospel now, a doorway has opened and now you have the privilege of proclaiming and declaring the incomparable weight and worth of Jesus Christ. It's not something that you have to do. It's something that now you may do. And, you know, I've loved this passage of Scripture all my life. I've I, I loved this passage of Scripture as a middle schooler and a high schooler. I loved it in college. I loved it in my seminary days. I loved it in my early ministry days. I've always loved 1 Peter 2, the whole chapter of it, but especially 9 and 10. But only in the last two months have I ever really seen these three little words, and they just exploded inside of me. And I went, this is a complete paradigm shifter and a game changer for all of life, because it really does set the tone that I want to have in my life. I'm not there yet, but I want to lean towards these three little words, that you May And I hope that our whole house will lean toward them uh, because they they redial everything for us. It's not now that you ought to declare the praises of him. uh, It's that now you are able to, you may, you have the privilege and opportunity of being those people now that proclaim the praises of God to the world. I kind of dug around those words and to proclaim or declare, to announce publicly is one translation, to show forth, to celebrate, to publish to divulge and to declare his praises, and the word praises, to declare the praises of him, really means that praises word means the excellencies of him, the virtue of him, or the moral excellence of him, or the perfection of him. It's like saying, you know what, the weight that came down was virtuous in every way, perfect in every way, excellent in every way, morally perfect to lift us all up out of our immoral imperfect lives. The weight was perfect in every way. And we have the opportunity now, the privilege now, to publish the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And then the last part of the verse says, for, for once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And once you had not received mercy, but now You have received mercy. And now that you've received mercy, you may. You may. See, there's a one way of doing religious life, and it's you should. And there's a whole other world over here called you may. And I want to live in you may. See, the three words could be because you can so we're going to have a big time of giving on, on June 9th. And you say, you know, well, we can give. We can. We can do that. We have somebody in the bank. We can give $100 or we could give $1,000. We can do that. But it's really not about that we can because that's really not a good enough motivation for you or for me. That really doesn't stir your heart and it really doesn't stir God's heart. It's not about, okay, we can do that. It's definitely not that we should or that we ought. We're not asking anybody to do anything because you should or you ought or even that you can because it's better than that. It's even more amazing to think that you may. Are there parents in here, your kids ever say, mom, 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 can I whatever, whatever, whatever? And, Mom, what do you say when your kids say, can I whatever, whatever, whatever? What do you say back to them? You say, may I do whatever, whatever, whatever? Why do you do that? Any moms do that? Anybody know what I'm talking about? When you kid got a mom back here, you're have Mom, can I have one of these? You're at the store, and you're in the checkout, and they're all, you know, hollering. Can I have this? Can I have this? And you're like, first off, may I have this? And they're like, okay, okay, I want it, so I'm going to redial. May I have it? You know? And then you start going down your progression, right? Well, let's think about it for a minute. They're like, no, we don't want to think about it. We just need to know, can we get it? Can we eat it now? Can we unwrap it even before we pay for it? Can we get it? Why do you do that, mom? I think part of the reason is is because can I sounds a little entitled. And may I feels like extraordinary privilege. And I think what's in a mom's heart, I don't know what's in a mom's heart, but I think what's in a mom's heart is, do you understand that money doesn't grow on trees? Do you know that we're not printing money in the laundry room? I know it sounds like it sometimes when it kind of gets kind of rumbling in there, but we're not printing money in there. Do you understand that there are other people in the world who will never see the opportunities you're looking at right now? your mom ever do that? Well, I'm going to let you have it, but you have to understand there are other kids in the world who don't get to get that. You're like, I'm five. I don't know what you're talking about. I just want it. You know, and that's kids, right? Because as soon as you say you may, then they say, What's the next phrase? Oh, you're so amazing and wonderful and generous to me. My heart is overwhelmed with gratitude. I fall to my knees. <laughs> I lift up my hands in holy worship and say, Thank you, thank you, thank you. I am yours. <laughs> now they say, Can I have two? And they'll work you. If you're not in a good mood or you're tired, they'll get a whole case of them. I mean, they'll be carrying two boxes out, you know? (laughs) Can we move here? (laughs) Can we invite the makers of this to come to our house? You know, I mean, they're just going to go as far as they can because they're thinking, that's what I want. And what you're wanting them to think is there's a whole system of life. And that system is built around a few basic principles. And they're all rooted on this idea that you are a very privileged person and you have a very privileged life and I love you very much and I am totally cool with you having this. In fact, I'm gonna get it for you. But I just want you to know that I love you, right? And I want you to know that all this we're experiencing together, it didn't just happen. It's special. you are like, Louie, it's a candy bar. <laughs> but you understand, right? We're on the same page. And that's the economy of the kingdom. Do you know that God today doesn't need one thing from us? He doesn't need one thing. from you except your affection and he really honestly doesn't need that he's just chosen to want it really bad and so you're free today I want to speak that over you today you don't have to give God anything you're free So let's cut the cord to religion, let's cut the cord to ought, let's cut the cord to we should or even to I can. Let's just cut all those cords today and let me just speak over us today. You don't have to give God a dime, you don't have to serve God, you don't have to worship God and you don't have to love God, but because the weight came down, you may. You have become, we have become the most privileged people on earth. And we may. Can you you think about that with me today? We get to worship God. The God. We get to worship the God of gods. We do. Rebellious, dead people. And our eyes have been opened on the observation deck. And we're looking at the glory of God. The riches of God, the wonder of God, the story of forever, and of all the billions of people on planet Earth today, there are only a handful who are declaring the praises and the excellent worth of the one who brings you out of darkness and into everlasting light. And we're some of them today. We're some of the people who may declare the praises of God. So do you have to come to worship at Passion City Church? No, but you may. Does our family have to give on Generosity Sunday above and beyond our normal giving? No, you do not have to give on Generosity Sunday, but you may. Do we have to be a door holder here? That's all I hear about is door holders. Door holder this and door holder that. My neighbor's a door holder. Y'all have special meetings for door holders from what I hear vision and leadership night oh you have to be a door holder to go to that you have to be a door holder here no no you don't have to be a door holder at Passion City Church but you may you have to put on a yellow rain suit and a vest just because of all the affirmation you know you're gonna get from the people in their cars on a rainy day when it's thundering and lightning and your very well-being may be at risk no you don't have to do that but go ask those guys out there and those ladies out there today but you may and they're going out the door going we got it it's raining and thundering and lightning and miserable and awful come on we are going because we may not because we ought to or we should or even because we can we're going because we may Stand on a corner in the rain and make a way for that family right there to come into the house of God. We may. You have to worship Jesus? You don't. But you may. That's a game changer. And when that seeps down into my heart and I'm praying to God Almighty it will. More and more and more. It changes everything. You have to come back and speak again at 5 I've already done it twice. No, but I may. <laughs> to make it easier? No. Same effort you've got to put into it. But I may, and you may, and we may. That we may is the privilege of the gospel, and it is the weight of our worship.